All right, welcome to the first episode of From Phenom to the Farm, an interview series presented by Baseball America. My name is Kyle Bandujo, and I am your host. The purpose of this series, for now at least, is to hear the stories and experiences of both current and former players whose professional careers began immediately after they graduated from high school. MLB is unique compared to the NFL and NBA in terms of both signing players out of high school and the farm system lifestyle for its young players. So we wanted to hear from guys from all spectrums of the draft and pro career results on their personal stories, how they adapted to professional life right after high school, climbing through the minor leagues, and taking a retrospective look at make-it-or-break-it aspects of their careers, along with the things that they wish they would have known at the outset. Leading off the series is MLB veteran lefty Eric O'Flaherty. He and I talked actually during the 2019 World Series, so it's been a little bit since we recorded this, but Eric was both really gracious with his time and incredibly blunt honest about his experiences all the way from popping up on draft boards to his final season in the show. He didn't hold anything back on what got him from being a self-admittedly immature six-round pick from Walla Walla High School into a guy who racked up 10 years of big league service time. For now, the plan for this series is new episodes every other week, again featuring high school signees detailing a variety of experiences. If you enjoyed this interview and want to hear everything that's upcoming, please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts, and if you so wish, leave a rating and review, as those always do help. Also, make sure to check out everything going on at BaseballAmerica.com. We've just passed Top 100 season, and for my personal preference, Teddy Cahill and Joe Healy are putting out some great college baseball preview content, which is always worth subscribing for, and a great reason to check out the Baseball America podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho. I'll be posting updates on this series with future guest and episode scheduling info, as well as my weekly sports movie podcast, Big Screen Sports. With that, I hope you enjoyed the first episode from Phenom to the Farm with former big league pitcher Eric O'Flaherty. All right, today I am joined by 12-year big league veteran, current co-host of the 755 is Real podcast, left-hand pitcher Eric O'Flaherty. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. It's uh, it's getting cold up here in Seattle, so um, stra- you know, just settling in for the winter, I guess. But enjoying this World Series, man. Game seven tonight. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, we're recording this uh, the day of Game Seven, October thirtieth. It's getting cold down here in Texas, so I can't even imagine what uh, what Washington's like. I was. It got down to thirty six last night, which is it's kind of rare for Seattle to to be this cold this early. But I don't know. It's better than the rain, so I'll take it. Yeah, depending on when this drops, it might be even uh, it might be even colder when uh, when you're listening to this. But you know, before we get into your story, your experience uh, as a high school signee, tell people about what you're doing with the uh, Seven Five Five is Real podcast. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I just I retired a couple of years ago and didn't really have much um, going on. And uh, a beat writer from the the Braves, uh, guy that covered the team when I was there, uh, he reached out and just asked if I'd have interest in. Um, co-hosting a podcast i think he'd heard some radio interviews or, or something like that and i you know i said sure um but it's been a it's been really it's been a pretty fun um we just kind of talk uh braves baseball a couple times a week whatever's going on with the team uh gives us a chance to just gives me a chance actually because i wasn't too friendly with the media when i played um i didn't like having to give um you know proper answers i like being able to say what's really on my mind so our podcast, we just, you know, I get to give him kind of some insight and, and, and what would really be going through my head if I was in these situations as a player. It's done it's done pretty well so far. It's been pretty fun, so I'm pretty sure we'll keep doing it. 
Well, I'm hoping you keep that mentality with this interview, you know, talking about your experiences. Let's get right into it. Let's take it back to the to the early 2000s. You're, you're growing up playing baseball. I'm um, going to be a bad host and deviate from the run sheet right away. Uh, you know, Normally, I want to start with when did you know being a professional baseball player was a possibility, but you, you popped up kind of late. So what was, what was your baseball experience like before you popped up you know, in the fall of your senior year? Did, did you have aspirations to play beyond high school? Was it just something you were doing for fun? What was your experience playing baseball like? Uh, yeah, I just liked baseball. You know, um, I played every sport I could um, growing up. I, I really liked basketball, but um, once I got to high school, I kind of realized that you needed to pay a little you know, closer attention and be able to run plays and things like that. And I just wanted to try to dunk and, and swap people. So um, my high school basketball career didn't really take off um, just with the immaturity there. But, uh, you know, we uh, growing up, I played Little League, played, um, you know, Pony, all that stuff. I'd played middle school. Um, my freshman year of baseball, I didn't even play. Um, the basketball season just kind of ran too long. And by the time it was, you know, we basketball season just ended and it was like we got baseball practice in a week and I just kind of told my parents um you know I don't feel like playing uh baseball and I think my dad knew I had a pretty good arm and and that I should play but he also didn't want to put that pressure on me and cram it down my throat and make it to a a, into a thing where um you know I it just became too much and kind of ruined the game for me he wanted me to always have fun out there so he said okay you know you're gonna miss it but um don't play and you know, that's that summer I wound up playing uh, Legion ball and everything. And that was really the only time I ever took off from baseball, but I never took baseball as like this future career or, you know, a, a way for me to get into college or anything like that. It was just, it was always something I kind of did as fun, uh, just, just for fun. And, you know, most of my time was just playing out in the front yard with wiffle balls. And, um, they had these pizza hut, um, giveaways, when I was a kid that it was like a foam ball and a foam bat, but you could make the ball break like 15 feet. So kind of like those blitz balls that you see kids playing with now. But um, most of how I learned how to throw was just, you know, doing stuff like that and just kind of playing around with the game of baseball and imitating my favorite Mariners players and, and things like that. But yeah, it never really seemed like, you know, an avenue for me to do anything really in life with. It was just kind of something I loved doing. Well, walk me through the moment where being, you know, where, where it became something that you thought that, hey, I might play past high school. I might be a professional baseball player. Was it a possibility for you first that you might be a professional or that you just might move on and, and play in college? I think it all kind of happened at the same time. Um, you know, I played, like I said, I played Legion ball and toward the end of my 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 junior summer playing Legion ball, I started getting up to like 87, 88 or something like that. And uh, the leagues I was playing in, that was gas. Uh, if you threw 88, it was by everybody. Um, so That's early 2000s cheese. Oh, yeah, it's gas, especially in the Northwest. I don't, You know, down in California, Florida, Texas, I, I think they had plenty of kids doing that. But up in our leagues, man, if, if you were throwing 88, people were a top step of the dugout just in awe, right? Um so toward the end of my uh, my summer after my junior year, I'm playing for that team, and I got invited to play a, um, a, for a fall travel team. It was called Baseball Northwest. And they just took you know the, the best kids in, on the eastern side of the state. They took the best kids on the western side of the state, and they made you know kind of travel teams out of them. And that, there wasn't a ton of that um, up there. I just don't think it was that profitable. But regardless, um, I got invited to play, and you know we'd play like, 
junior college, D3 schools, things like that. And we'd compete against them. We'd, we'd beat most of them. Um, it was a lot of fun. I pitched a lot. Um, there were some pretty good games. I had some bad ones. I didn't really think anything of it. You know, I just, I just felt like playing more baseball and, and I'd gotten zero pro ball attention, uh, throughout that season. Um, but we went down to play in some tournament, uh, in Arizona at the, uh, it was at the Mariners complex. The Mariners Padres shared a complex in Peoria. And these were the nicest field I'd ever played on. Um, so I pitched the first day against some team from Texas. And like I said, man, it's the kids down in, in Texas, California, Florida that were able to play year round. And the sport was so much bigger down there. Uh, it was just men against boys. You know, we, we couldn't even compete with them. They just, they whooped our, they killed us. And, um, you know, they were just so much better, so much more advanced. Uh, they were way better than any college team from the Northwest we'd played that, that whole fall. Um, I did okay, but I could tell I wasn't really throwing them anything that, that they, um, they hadn't seen before. Uh, you know, they weren't impressed with my stuff. I threw like two innings and in the second inning, I took a line drive, uh, off my backside, you know, left a huge welt. And, uh, when, when the coach took me out of the game, he said, Hey, you know, make sure you're ready, um, for tomorrow, you know, ride the bike, ice, do what you got to do tonight. Cause I told all the scouts, you'd be, you'd be pitching the showcase game at the big stadium. And I just kind of said, scouts, you know, scouts, what, what do scouts want to see me for? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, it just, it never even crossed my mind that scouts would want to see me, but you know, there were scouts here, but you also knew there was, there's future first rounders and, and kind of some, some big time prospects from all these other teams. Cause it was a, it was a pretty good collection of, of talent, um, but yeah, so there'd be scouts from Pro Ball, D1, uh, everywhere all over the country, he said. And he's like, you're starting a game under the lights. And I was just like, holy shoot, okay, uh, I guess I'll get ready for that, you know. Um, so that was kind of, that was the first time I ever thought I'd even, you know, be be pitching in front of them. And uh, so I pitched in that game. And going into that game, the hardest I'd ever been clocked was, I don't know, 89, like one time. And I'd, had, I'd talked to Oregon State a little bit that summer. They came and watched me pitch a uh, Legion ball game, and I never heard back from them. Um, and I that was pretty much the, the most interest I'd gotten from anybody except maybe the local junior college. Um, so I just I didn't feel like there was really any interest in college or pro ball. Um, but this was the first time I'd ever uh, really stretched my arm out. You know, the high school leagues up in the Northwest, it's all double headers and it's, it's a short season. Um, so... You take some time off and then you play Legion ball, but it's still pretty sporadic, just like some tournaments and practices. There's not a lot of structure to it. And at this point, I'd never pitched back-to-back days either. Um, But I'd been throwing for six months straight for the first time in my life. And I learned later on in my baseball career that I love pitching back-to-back days. It's just something about it kind of, you know, I think it's a timing thing. I just feel so much cleaner with my timing. And... So I get into this game and I'm just blowing the hitters away. My arm felt unreal. I mean, it's night game, big league stadium, big league lights, uh, tons of scouts, you know, tons of people watching, a bunch of different teams, because um, nobody really had anything to do at night after the tournament. Uh, the day games were over. People all watched the the big game at the stadium, and it was just a perfect atmosphere for me to really just kind of show out and get noticed. And after like the second or third inning, one of the guys on my team comes up to me and he goes, "Oh." Hey man, my dad just said you're throwing 94. I was like, what? <laughs> I throw 87, dude. It's probably just a bad read, you know, because nobody ever gave you credit back then for one one pitch, you know, one read. They just say, you know, it's, it's a off the bat or something like that. I always say off the bat. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And then he goes, no, man, there's there's 20 guns up there that have you sitting 92, 94 every pitch. And I just, I kind of, I kind of panicked for a second and didn't really, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. It's, it's like, I, I didn't know I could do this, right? But I'm on this big stage, the biggest stage I'd ever pitch on. And luckily, you know, before I could really overthink anything, the inning ended and, and I just got back on the mound and started chucking again. Um, so I threw maybe, I think I threw five innings and punched out a bunch of guys. Nobody could touch anything I was throwing. And, and my breaking ball was really good too. Um, and these, this was a team, I think from Arizona, that was a really, really talented, good team, you know, a lot of good players on it. So, um, I get, I finish up the game and, and we get all, you know, all my teammates are freaking out. Right. And they just think, man, I didn't know you could do that either. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know that I was in the tank. Um, but it's the best I've ever thrown on that big stage. And so I checked my voicemail after the game and my mom and dad had called and, you know, they said, you got to call us back right away. So I thought, you know, maybe a family emergency or something. Uh, so I call them back and, and they're like, what did you do? We got all these scouts calling us nonstop. Right. They'd had 50 and we'd never heard from a single scout at all, ever. And they had 15 scouts call them during the game, which they're not supposed to do. They're supposed to, you know, just scout and then call you when the tournament's over or something like that. Uh, and even the Oregon State coaches had called and asked if I was still coming there. <laughs> and my mom, <laughs> mom was like, hey, we didn't even know you guys wanted him. You know, we never heard back from you. What are you talking about? So we kind of laugh about that. And yeah, there was just kind of this huge flurry, you know, just this extreme interest out of out of nowhere almost overnight. Um, lefties didn't sit 93 with control back then. Um, it wasn't, you know, if you were throwing 93 back then, it was, you were probably going to be a first rounder. Um, so they were telling me, you know, I was going to be a first rounder. There's all these scouts coming to the house every week. These damn questionnaires coming in the mail. Uh, colleges calling, saying, you know, they'll give me a full ride, want me to come for a visit. Everyone around the, the high school started getting word of it. People started treating me different. Um, you know, it was a lot to take in for, for an 18-year-old. Uh, it's, so it sounds like you got <laughs> you got thrust into this life of being a prospect. It wasn't something where gradually, you know, you were an 88 guy as a freshman and it started. It was no. 0 to 60 for you, really. really Did quick. that change how you felt about baseball at all? No. When you actually played? No, it was, it was never, I never looked at it as like, you know, I think a lot of kids, it almost turns into a job for them when they turn into those supers prospects. And all of a sudden it's just, there's so much uh, pressure for them. There was never any pressure with it. Um, but it did change, you know, it changed a lot for me. Um, you know, dealing with the thought of, of getting drafted your senior year after popping up on the map like that, um, it, you know, it's just, you know, after I visited and I committed, it was just pure pro ball attention after that because the, the, the college thing was settled. And, you know, there were some junior colleges calling, you know, trying to talk me out of going D1. But really, once that's settled, the only thing left is whether you're going to actually go to the school or if you're going to commit to pro ball. There's some guys that it benefits, like if your draft stock falls a ton and then you go to JUCO and, and you know, work out and some guys would go to JUCO for a year and, and make some really big strides maturity and physically um, wise. And, and, and then they get drafted in the first round after that, you know? Um, so th that's kind of the pitch that they're, they were selling me, but you know, all these scouts, they'd only seen me throw 93, 94 and they'd never heard of me or seen me before. So that's just what they thought I did. 
So they're telling me I'm going to be a first rounder and I'm thinking I'm going to be a first rounder. And, and I'm thinking now that's what I do. You know, I throw 93, 94 now. Right. So I bought a DuPont registry and started car shopping. And uh, <laughs> you got a little bit ahead of yourself. Yeah, there. I did. Yeah, I did. I was 18 uh, or a 17 at the time. And I was going to buy a Ferrari or something after the draft, you know, and I thought a million dollars is what first rounders were signing for back then. I thought that'd buy me, you know, half of New York City. I just had no clue, you know, how to measure anything or any gauge on real life. Um, the problem was I had no clue how to prepare myself for a baseball season either. You know, um, I, I would just pick up a ball like two weeks before practice started. Um, you play catch a couple times, throw a bullpen or two, and then you just you just jump into game action. So, you know, if you know anything about baseball, that's a that's a terrible approach. You know, you need you need some time to build arm strength. Uh, you got to build up your arm and, and it, the vo- velocity is not a decision. It's it's something that you have to work toward and and your body has to adjust to the stress. And, you know, those three, four months off, you lose a lot of it. But so my first game was in Yakima. Um, it was like 40 degrees outside with a negative 40 wind chill there's probably 15 scouts there and I start the game and it's like, here comes the first rounder. You know, that's what's going on in my head. I'm about to do my thing. So I go out there and I just start throwing my 93, 94 first round stuff, letting them know what's up. And I feel pretty decent. I'm blowing the hitters away, but I'm blowing the hitters away because it's the Northwest. You know, it's, it's, it's not a really tough league. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, shoot, I might be, I might be throwing like 96, 97 today. Who knows? And, (laughs) (laughs) But then I'm, you know, as I'm kind of, you know, I'm blowing these hitters away, but I'm picking up at the scouts and I notice they're kind of looking at their guns like, you know, hitting the side of them like you would with an old TV or something that's not functioning right, right? And I'm thinking that's kind of weird, you know. Uh, A few more pitches and they just put their guns away and most of them start to leave in the second inning. And so I have one of my buddies run up and ask their Not dad ideal. how hard I was throwing. <laughs> no, no, they, yeah. So I have my buddy run up and, and find out, you know, how hard he's throwing or whatever. And comes back and they go, you're 84 to 86. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the weather didn't help. But I set 84, 86 pretty much every April. And I really didn't get my velocity that spring until uh, – you know, late May, once my arm strength was built up. So my draft stock uh, fell quite a bit, probably where it should have been, but it fell quite a bit. And by the time I started throwing 92, um, all the teams had already kind of, you know, they'd seen what they thought they were going to get out of me. So I fell to like fifth round projections, which I still didn't care one bit. It's like, that's like 200 grand. You know, a Ferrari can't be more than like 50 grand. Right, <laughs> just, just exactly co- completely clueless, right? But didn't think about the taxes or anything. It's nothing, just, nothing just at all. Get, so, so at that point, even though your draft stock had fallen, you were still dead set. I'm going pro. I'm getting that money. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and I wasn't, you know, college. I didn't. My my visit was cool and everything, but I also knew you had to do a ton of school, and and you know, I knew that you work really hard and. I don't know. I just, I knew I wasn't really suited for college based on all that immaturity. Um, so my, my mind was pretty much dead set on pro ball most of that winter and most of that spring. How much about pro ball, the lifestyle, and we'll get into that, you know, we'll get into the, the whole lifestyle a bit later, but just you're a senior in high school. How much about that life and, and what pro ball requires of you did you know of you know, before you signed or was it just, Hey, you, you get paid to play baseball. You get paid to play baseball. And I, and you know, I pictured 
uh, I pictured even rookie ball, but it's pro ball, you know, it's, it's, it's pro ball, right? So I pictured even, uh, even rookie ball being, you know, probably 10,000 people in the stands. There's zero. There's not a single person. And it's, it's a 10 a.m. game, you know, I, it wasn't how I pictured it at all. But what I had drawn up in my head was completely different from, you know, the reality of it. So yeah, I knew nothing. And I just, I knew you got paid to play baseball and call yourself a pro athlete, you know, it's, sounds good to me. So draft day, you, you've gotten back up to, to 89, 91, you know, you've touched 92, you, you, your stock's where it's at. You get taken by the Mariners, your home state team, sixth round. What is that like? So draft day, so back then, all we really had was that MLB.com draft tracker, right? It had, um, it had some, it had a little clip of you throwing, it had a scouting report, and then as the draft unfolded, just each guy's little profile would pop up next to that team in their slot. Um, so I, I went to school and the draft was starting at like one. So I left school at noon. Um, yeah, I didn't have anybody around me. My dad was at work. My mom was at work. I was just sitting on my couch and watching this draft tracker thing. Um, and the rounds just go by. My agent had told me, he goes, you're going to go anywhere from the third round to the seventh or eighth round. And, you know, just being naive, I just figured, nah, I'm going third round. I threw 92 last weekend, you know, um, not really understanding how it worked or anything. But, uh, yeah, so I get a call uh, while the fourth round's going on. And it's this guy, Jay Harrison, that I really liked. He'd come to my house that offseason, um, scout for the Braves. And he said, and the Braves were on me hard, uh, which kind of explains why I wound up with them later on in, in life. They They always liked my arm, but... Uh, Jay Harrison calls and he goes, Hey man, uh, we're not going to be able to take you with this fourth round pick, but if we take you in the fifth round, will you sign for 300,000? I said, yeah, you know, yeah, you're rich. This was the thing I yeah, I mean, that's gotta be like three houses. I don't know. Let me, let me get some of this money. Uh, and I wanted to be with the Braves cause they'd sent me this video with Chipper and all these guys talking about how great it was to be a brave. And, you know, I don't know if kids would fall for that now, but I thought it was the coolest video ever. Um, so I'm on the phone with him. He's saying, well, you signed for 300. And then the fifth round pick comes and they take somebody else. And he calls me right back and he goes, look, you know, we got this other guy we didn't think was going to available. We're going to take you in the sixth round. We'll still give you the 300. Does that sound like a deal? And I said, yeah, you know, no problem at all. And I don't know why my, uh, advisor, cause you don't call him an agent yet, but my advisor didn't prepare me for this day one bit. Um, cause I think he thought I was going to be a first rounder when he picked me up. And so when I started, you know, my stock started falling, I think he kind of lost some of that interest, but, uh, so they call and they, you know, Jay's I'm on the phone with Jay and he says, you know, we're going to give you 300 or just, just hold on, you know, we're going to take you with our next pick. I promise. I'm like, cool. I'm going to the Braves while I'm talking to him. My phone beeps and it's Phil Geisler, a scout for the Mariners. And Phil calls me and he says, uh, Hey, this is Phil Geisler with the Mariners. We're about to take you with our next pick. Will you sign for 150,000? I said, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's do it. I just, you know, I just wanted to play pro ball. Right. Um, so, I mean, I cost myself 150,000 right there just saying yes, but that was where my, did head you have at. nerves or was you, were you just kind of taking everything as it was? No, I just had a big grin on my face. Like, this is awesome. These pro ball teams are finally drafting me. You know, I just, I was pretty, um, I was pretty dead set on the idea since I'd been told I was going to be a high draft pick. I was so committed to it that I just I just wanted to end a pro ball at that point any way possible. 
So you go in, you sign for 155. You're basically right around slight, you're right in the bell curve of everyone you're around. You're in a surprisingly loaded sixth round. You've got a couple big leaguers, and you got Sean Marshall in there, Kevin Kuzminoff. Um, and I think then Matt a, Kemp know, was a pick. Yeah, right a guy after named me. Matt. Yeah, a guy yeah. named Matt Kemp goes five picks after you. Yeah, you, you can always you can always hang your hat that you signed for more than Matt Kemp. Yeah, I told him that. We were teammates with the Braves. I told him I was a better prospect out of high school than him. <laughs> so, <laughs> he so, was not impressed. <laughs> so you, you verbally agreed to the to the 155 over the phone. How long was the process between that phone call and you're on a plane headed to Arizona? It was zero. You know, as I graduated high school, like, you know, a day or two after the draft, and I was on a plane to Arizona a day or two after that. But the process to sign was... Um, my agent called me, right? And he said, okay, so you want to sign with the Mariners? I was like, yeah, what are you going to negotiate and get me this, you know, this, this awesome deal? Let's get some more money. And he goes, well, you told him on the phone, you'd sign for 155. And I kind of just said, what did I hire you for? Why am I giving you a cut? (laughs) This is your whole gig right here. And I'm just giving you a cut. and And you didn't even tell me to to tell them to call you or anything like that, you know, so I don't know who's really to blame for that. I don't know if it was kind of a shady move on the scouts to ask that, um, right up front like that, or if it was my agent should have prepared me better because they're always going to ask that. But either way, that was, that was settled. So, um, I didn't really care. I was just kind of like, man, I guess I, I messed that up. But, um, so two, three days after I graduate high school, I'm on a plane to Arizona and I'm getting started in pro bowl. So, you're on that plane. What are, what are your expectations of yourself? You've kind of said already you didn't have much knowledge about what pro ball entails. You only recently in your mind have thought that, you know, less than a year that being a professional baseball player has been in your mind. What was your scouting report on yourself? What were your expectations of yourself? You know, when we talked before, you told me that you didn't, you told a scout something that you didn't have the the highest aspirations of yourself off the bat. Oh, uh, well, that was a scout for the Rockies. So, I mean, I, we had a scout coming to our house, you know, twice a week for that entire uh, winter after I'd, after I'd had that good tournament showing. Um, and the scout for the Rockies, you know, he, uh, he pretty much said, you know, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I'm trying to be realistic, right? So I don't know, maybe work in construction or something. <laughs> he goes, he goes, exactly what the scouts want to hear. <laughs> so he's like, hey, man, that's that's the wrong answer. Okay, you when next scout that asks you this, you need to say, you know, I want to be in the Rockies rotation. You know, I want to be the number two starter for the Colorado Rockies. You know, you, you have to act like you know you're going to succeed and show this confidence. But, you know, it's just for me, it, it was never even a possibility to make – to get into pro ball. So I'm not going to sit there and tell him. I thought I'd be sounding, you know, a little cocky or something. If I told him, yeah, I'll just, I'm going to be Randy Johnson. Um, but yeah, you know, going into it, um, I didn't, I didn't really have any expectations and it was all just so new. Uh, I just kind of just took it one day at a time and whatever, wherever someone told me to be or whatever someone told me to do, I just did it. So no, I'm going to be a, a starter. I'm going to be a Hall of Famer. I'm just going to going to make it to the big leagues. It's day by day. Yeah, just I'll just try to throw hard. That was I mean, that's legitimately, you know, as as immature as that sounds, it's just where my head was at at the time. I was I was just a kid, you know, and, and I had a lot to learn. And, and I really didn't know too much about baseball because in in high school, man, you can 
you just go throw seven innings and you punch out 15 every time and you're awesome. Everybody loves you. There's no, there's no failure to learn from really in high school because you're just, you know, when you're able to, to throw 88 to 92, it's, you don't fail. You know, you just, you just blow everybody away and everybody thinks you're awesome, but you learn from failure. And I, I really, there was no learning moments for me because I was better than the league I was in. So having expectations is a little different than than preparedness. How prepared when you got off that plane to Arizona? How prepared do you think at that time did you feel like you were? Did you feel like this was a daunting challenge or did you feel like, "Hey, I'm ready for this. I'm good to go." And then how prepared were you actually when you got off that plane looking back now, you know, 16 plus years ago? You know, I mean, physically I was prepared because I had a good arm and I was left-handed. Um, and, I, and I figured pro ball was going to be hard, but I was ready to give it all I got. But, you know, the the place where I wasn't prepared was just kind of being out in the real world on my own, you know, three days after graduating high school. So, like, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, just overall, I was probably a 1.1. Uh, Ooh, small, that's tough. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it was. there's a lot of um, growing up I had to do fast. Just small town mentality. I'd never really traveled or done anything on my own. The first time I was ever on a plane uh, was to go to that. Um, well, I'd been on a plane when I was like four, and then my second flight of my life was to go to uh, that tournament in Arizona, and that was it. Um, so just very naive, you know. It's <laughs> even the first day at Pro Bowl, that flight lands, and you know they told me you got to go to Super Shuttle, and they told me the Hampton Inn in, in Peoria, blah blah blah. Well, I get off the the plane, I go find the super shuttle and I said, Hey, can you take me to the Hampton Inn? And the guy's just like, well, there's 45 Hampton Inn here, but which, which Hampton Inn do you need to go to? So I said, I think it's on bell road. And he's, he said, there's like maybe five or six Hampton Inns on bell road. Cause bell road's about 35, 40 miles or something in, in Arizona. It's a, it's a super long road. So I couldn't even, I mean, it took me it took me another 40 minutes just to figure out how to get to the hotel from the airport. I was just so, you know, unprepared to be out there and, and, you know, paying attention to details and and writing things down and being organized and having things together. It just wasn't, it wasn't me yet, but you know, I had to learn all that pretty quick. So not to, not to spoil the ending of this interview, but you did make it, you ended up, you know, being a 12 year major leaguer. What mentality did you have then? And what mentality do you think a player needs to make it it needs to have in themselves right off the bat or learn quickly to at least have the mental shot to make it in baseball. I think you need to be a really good self evaluator. Um, you, you need to be accountable and you need to be, you know, you need to have a mindset that, you know, this was my mindset that I think helped me make it. And the reason I made it was that my mindset was just that, you know, whatever happens, when I walked away from baseball, I was going to know I did everything I possibly could to be the best pro ball player um, I could. And I didn't expect to make it to the big leagues. I just wanted to be able to walk away from it all knowing it wasn't a possibility if I didn't make it. you know. And, and that mindset kept me from partying too much. It kept me um, pretty consistent in the weight room. It kept me eating pretty healthy, taking care of my body, stretching, doing all the little things that, that I think make a big difference. And it, it was mainly just I just had this fear of, of – letting my my future self down um and that that fear dictated everything i did where you know i think the most important thing for high school kids is you know they you got to be surrounded by good people and, and good mentors but you also you know you have to have this mindset that you have to understand the odds 
and and the odds are not in your favor. That's the first thing they tell you when you get into pro ball is look to your left, look to your right. You know, both those guys are going to be gone next year because that's just the reality of it. So you have to understand that. But um, just telling myself that uh, if I do fail, it's not going to be because of me. It's going to be because I'm just not good enough. Um, I think that was a really important mindset for me to have because it just it kept me so focused and so afraid to let myself down. Um, that I was always just doing the little extra exercises that I saw other guys not doing. You know, other guys just be hungry, they go eat lunch, and I'd be sitting there doing my jobs, just knowing. You know, I'd be doing my my shoulder weights, I'd be I'd be getting that running in, um, just knowing that you know if I do fail, it's not gonna be because I didn't put the work in. You mentioned having mentors, and I think one of the things that makes baseball a lot different with their rookies, with their their new signees, is in like the NFL and the NBA. Uh, a rookie is going to be on a team. There, there's going to be older guys on the team. There's going right. to be veterans. There's guys who've gone through it before, been professionals, who've handled money, which is a big factor. Yeah, you're with you know you go you land in Arizona, you play, so, you know you throw some innings and in, in rookie ball. You spend you know a couple games in short season. You're surrounded by 18, 19, 20 year olds. You're all new to this. You're all probably a little bit scared to death. Was there anyone you had to lean on, whether it was an older player or management, coaches, anything like that? Someone that, that you could at least have as a – someone to just spit ideas off and someone to just be a soundboard for you? No. Um, the first person that really held me count, accountable was uh, Derek Lee's younger brother, Brian. Uh, I wound up rooming with him my first spring training and I would just do dumb stuff, man. I'd throw these big fits and, and I just want to get my way and I, I'd get mad and, I'd, and and frustrated and try to fight people and, and just do r- just really dumb things. And, and I'd be in the wrong, but, uh, B Lee, man, he was, he was six, three, two forty five shredded. So he held me accountable. And if I was going to try to fight, I was going to have to fight him. Right. So he was kind of like, he, he was just so much bigger than me physically, I had to listen to him. But he was a really honest, um, just fair guy. And I, I needed that. And he did care about me for whatever reason, even though I was kind of a turd. Um, so having him was really good. But what really helped me was I got into, once I got out of, because rookie ball is a disaster. Rookie ball is just a bunch of, like you said, it's just a bunch of other 18-year-olds getting into rookie ball that are just like you. Um making all the same mistakes and it's just kind of a, it's just a mess. Um, but once I got to a ball, you kind of weed some of that out. You're with some college kids. Um, and you, the expectations of you are going to be a lot higher, uh, not just on the field, but off the field too, how you handle yourself and everything. And, you know, my first year in a ball, I messed a lot of stuff up. A lot of guys on the team didn't like me. Um, I was, I just wasn't accountable and I wasn't very mature and it, it showed a lot of different ways. Um, my second year in a ball, I finally had this pitching coach get through to me. Um, and I'd come out of this game, I'd pitched bad. And I just stormed off and I went straight in the dugout and left, you know, the inning was still going on. I'd put my team in a hole and I was just making it all about myself again. And this coach, Brad Holman, he comes in, he goes, get your ass back on the dugout bench right now. And I, you know, I'm throwing my fit. I'm pissed off because I pitched bad. It's all about me. And I said, no. And he goes, now and he just towered over me he was probably six five I mean big guy and he goes if you don't get out there we're fighting and so I thought about fighting him and then I just thought you know I've been pitching bad enough if I fight a coach I'm probably getting released you know (laughs) 
Um, yeah, you're going home. I was working on my second year in A ball with a six and a half ERA. Um, and so he did that and he took me out there and he sat right next to me on the bench to make sure I didn't go anywhere. And he talked to me about the game the whole time and, and why it was important for me to sit on the bench and, and what I'm doing wrong, how I'm being perceived and all this stuff. And I didn't want to hear any of it and it was making me really mad. But at the same time, you know, the next morning I woke up, I didn't want to be that guy he told me I was. So when I got to the park that day, he goes, let's go out to the bullpen and work on some things. And he showed me everything I was doing wrong with my delivery because he tried to approach me before, but he hadn't been, you know, forceful enough, I guess. And he just showed me all these things I was doing wrong with my delivery. He told me what I was doing wrong mentally. He, He just he really just I matured a ton in about a 24 hour period because this guy was just willing uh, to basically fight me if I didn't listen. Uh, and that was maybe the only way to get through to me. And I wound up finishing that year. By the end of the season, I was a closer. I had like 16 saves and the second half of that season. I, um, I put up like a two ERA and the next year I was in the big leagues. So just that moment with him, I mean, it, it kind of, it turned my whole career around. Mm-hmm. Cause you about halved your ERA from 2004 and, and low A to 2005, right? Um, in, in that process, you also you went from you started in, right. in, at age 19 in 2004, age 20, your reliever. Mm-hmm. What was that transition like? Did was that the club's idea? Was that your idea? Mix of both? Uh, it was the club's idea, and I think you know more than anything, it was. Um, just finding a way to get anything out of me at that point because I'd had a bad back in 04 and I'd been hurt. In 05, I was repeating A ball. And when you repeat A ball and you put up a six ERA, you know, there's nowhere to send you down to that you're going to get anything out of. If, you know, if rookie ball is just, I mean, it's just chaos. Guys swing at everything. It's guys throwing balls at the backstop and hitters are striking out on them. It's, it's just such a, it's a terrible, it's terrible quality of baseball. Uh, but there's a lot of talent and a lot of guys kind of sorting it out. Um, but basically they just told me, you know, um, we're going to try you in the bullpen and see how you do. When you first came into pro ball, you did well in the bullpen. And, you know, we think with your mindset, you know, I think they were kind of saying the immaturity and everything, if it was a shorter stint, you know, I'd have less time to get exposed for that. Um, and just kind of being hard headed and, and, and just, you know, I always pitched with my hair on fire. So they just thought, you know, maybe, maybe the bullpen will work. And that's, that's right around that time that that talk with uh, Brad Holman happened. And, you know, from there, it just, I just, I took on a different personality and he's always been kind of a mentor for me and somebody that holds me accountable and, and tells me when I'm wrong and isn't afraid to have the tough conversations. So, I mean, I always, you know, I always talk about him and, and he, I mean, he changed not just my career, but he changed my life. So it sounds like that's how you got a handle on your on-field stuff, how you, you set yourself on the trajectory to, to being a big leaguer. But in, in terms of being a professional and just being a kid and growing up and maturing, there's a lot more to, to professional life and handling your business. How did you adjust to professional life You know, from the day you signed suddenly you go from a high school student lives with his parents to you basically got to be a grown man. You've got to be accountable for yourself. How did you... Uh, learn how to handle your business off the field, get in routine, especially that first off season where you suddenly you've got, you finished your first year of pro ball, you've got some money, you have this time to get, get ready for spring training. How did you transition into being a professional in life? Uh, well, so even when you get to rookie ball, you know, there you're getting up at five thirty in the morning and you're running at six 
Uh, there's just their structure, which I think that was the main reason I really needed to go into pro ball was was just the structure and and getting up really early in the morning keeps you from partying and things like that. And so I just you know that rookie ball is a grind, man. I mean it's it's a hundred degrees, it's exhausting, but it kind of it it builds uh, you know these habits for you. So I was already used to waking up early in the morning and working out, so it just kind of carried into the off season, and and those were the habits that I continued to have. Um, and then that fear of failure, you know, if I got invited out to a party or I got invited to go on a weekend trip or hang out with friends, um, I just always put baseball first. Uh, you know, not knowing whether I was going to make it or not didn't really matter. I, cause I just had that mindset that, you know, if I do fail, it's going to be because I'm just not good enough. And so pretty much everything was about, um, baseball all the time. After I got drafted, I was just committed to trying to get the most out of it, no matter where it, it wound up. And I figured I got the rest of my life to party and do all this. Um, and I don't know if that would have happened if I went to college, because I think it might've been a little too tempting. And you see a lot of guys go to college and then just party their talents away. And, and same thing in pro ball. There's plenty of guys that were better than me. Um, that just, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't put a routine together and couldn't stay out of trouble off the field. Um, but yeah, adjusting to pro pro life, um, you know, it's just one day at a time. I mean, my next, the spring training came the next year and you just kind of ask questions, figure out where you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to do it. Um, there's definitely a ton of, uh, speed bumps along the way, but yeah, I mean, it, it just, it just kind of happened. You know, you just kind of play it by ear and you don't really have a choice, but to adjust because everything's structured, everything's laid out where you need to be. So in, in that aspect of it, they make that, um, that pretty easy for you. And you, they take away a lot of your freedom and free time. And, um, they kind of make sure that you don't make the mistakes that, that they expect you to make if they give you too much freedom. Well, speaking of speed bumps, uh, let's minor league lifestyle there. There's some stereotypes about it. And a lot of those ring true, you know, especially back when you were coming up, you said you didn't have really any knowledge of what pro ball is like expectations or anything like that. The living arrangements, the bus trips, was that, was there a, a welcome to pro ball moment of, you know, some, a ratty apartment or a long bus ride? How was adjusting to that? Cause it's, it's, pretty there's quite the juxtaposition from being 18 years old and living with your parents home-cooked meals yada 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 you're living in in wisconsin and taking bus rides every couple days well whenever anyone asked me about my welcome to pro ball moment it was just my my first day there um you know you do all the physicals and everything like that and then you go out on the field and you watch a game and the first guy i saw throw is throwing 96 97 He's got a hammer curveball. He's hitting the glove. He's punching everybody out. And I'm just sitting there thinking, like, man, if this is this is what guys are doing in pro ball, um, I, I don't stand a chance here because I can't. I know I can't do that. But, you know, the next day I found out it was Felix Hernandez. Um, so that was kind of my welcome to pro ball moment of just, like, getting a taste of all that talent. And then as far as uh, – yeah, and then, the, you know, the next day's game, guys are throwing balls off the backstop and – throwing it all over the place. I'm like, okay, I got a shot here. Um, the food was terrible. Uh, I couldn't believe the food. Um, going to Appleton, Wisconsin and, and playing in front of zero people somewhere in Michigan after that. And it's six degrees outside. Nobody's at the games. Um, it, it was tough, but 
you just, you know, I, I never really let that bother me. And I didn't know any different. I didn't come from any kind of glamorous life. You know, I grew up in a small town. My dad was a mailman. So, you know, you just people put food in front of you, you just eat it, right? Um, some of the bus rides were tough, but, you know, none of that really, really ever phased me. Um, and I just kind of, I knew that wasn't the end game. You know, I knew that wasn't the goal. I didn't know where I was going to wind up, but I knew this wasn't it. And I knew if I did fail at this level, then whatever, I'll go home. Um, I just, I guess I never really looked too far ahead. I just knew there was somewhere better that I could be. And, and I was just going to, you know, bust my butt and see where I wound up. But the, the food didn't bother me. The, the facilities didn't bother me. Um, the most minor league stop though, um, definitely Clinton, Iowa, uh, you pull into this place and there was this, uh, wet dog food plant in, in left field. And when you get off the bus, guys would just start gagging. It smelled so bad. Um, I can imagine that smell in my oh mind. My God, and man, it, it, it makes just, me want to puke. The whole town smelled like it. It was disgusting. And, you know, after the game, you go to shower and they hadn't unclogged the drains or cleaned the showers and probably since they opened the stadium, I don't even know how long. So when you go to shower, uh, there was like three feet of standing water in there. And oh. <laughs> it was just, God. I mean, it was just was, that's probably the most minor league thing I can describe is just showering and, you know, days old bath water, shower water from a bunch of dirty minor leaguers. Um, that was, that was kind of one of those things where I was just like, man, I don't want to repeat this league just to never come back here. Some some motivation to never have to yeah. smell like dog food again. Yeah, and I think uh, that's that's the thing, you know, the motivation. I just looked at everything crappy that was going on as motivation to get to the next level. So let's go back to I guess your signing. You know, you agreed to that hundred fifty five thousand bonus. You mentioned you're from a working family and everything, and you're living this minor league lifestyle. But you're you know you're eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old. You have money for the first you know your own money in your yeah. hand and a lot of it for an 18 year old you uh you could you wouldn't be described as you know a bonus baby you didn't have seven figures or anything like that but it, it's not an insignificant amount of money at all how did you was there a lot of trial and error in terms of handling your money how did you go about it? would you uh would you tell yourself some some things do some things differently if, oh, I, if you could I do blew, it again i blew right through it um my dad offered to help me with the finances and I just said, no, nah, I got this dad, you know? <laughs> and I think a lot of times my dad, he just knew that I needed to learn hard lessons myself. Um, and so I, I just told him I'll manage it. I went out and bought an Escalade. I settled for an Escalade cause I realized Ferraris were like 400 grand. Right. So I went out and bought an Escalade at, you know, a, a week and a half after graduating high school, I get a check for $72,000. I have no clue what taxes are. I didn't care about taxes. I figured I thought the taxes on on my signing bonus would be probably eight hundred bucks, you know, because I I just had no <laughs> grasp on anything, right? Um, Not quite, right? Yeah, no, it was. I think it was like fifteen thousand or something, and you didn't pay those till January, and then you got another check for seventy something thousand, which was like, you know, seventy thousand dollars will never run out in your high school mind. The most I'd ever had in my bank account was seven hundred bucks, uh, so. I go out, I buy an Escalade, I'm going to the mall, buying new clothes, buying DVDs, buying all this stuff. It's just what you did when you were bored because you'd finish a rookie ball day or, you know, you finish your rookie ball day at one o'clock and you'd have 
eight hours in a city by yourself to do whatever you wanted. So you just wander over the mall and you got money in your pocket. Let's buy some new shoes or a DVD. Uh, I bought a ton of DVDs. Yeah, those aged well. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> I think I still have a few of them. But uh, yeah, so I just had all these DVDs and, and I'd, I'd go over to the mall and, and, you know, you eat out every meal. And the thing is, you know, you start getting your minor league paychecks. My first minor league paycheck was $103 for two weeks. Uh, you're getting meal money. It's like maybe $20 for a week. Um, so I, you know, I didn't do a good job calculating the math of how long that was going to work, but I wound up, you know, kind of figuring out once I had to pay taxes, uh, that that money's not going to last forever. But at that point it was almost, it was almost, you know, a little too late because I still had to pay rent. I had to ship cars. I had to buy flights. You have to do all this stuff, um, you know, for the, for the minor league season. That's, that's just, the the expenses to play pro ball never match up with the salary. You know, if if you're making five thousand a year and that's 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 gone, you've already you're already five thousand in the hole by the end of spring training, paying your rent and uh, paying for your you know your deposit on your apartment for the season. And if you get sent down, you got to ship your car somewhere else. Um, so I blew through my signing bonus. I was out of money in two thousand five, and I had to ask my dad to. Uh, to loan me some money to get through the season. And then after the season, I sold my Escalade, traded in for like a, like a forerunner or something that was worth, you know, 30 grand less. And I got some cash back and I lived off that until I got to the big leagues. So around, so I guess around 2021, you learned how to manage your money. You've had that talk with your pitching coach. You've kind of turned your on-field performance on. You're learning the big league lifestyle. You're 21 years old. You head to high A for the first time. Where's your mindset at at the beginning of that year? Because you'll end that year, or you'll you'll get to the majors that year. When you reported to Inland Empire, where were you at with your expectations of yourself? Did you think at that point that you were going to be a big leaguer still? Did you did you have that expectation yourself, or were you just trying to survive another year in pro ball? Well, I didn't I didn't know what the higher levels were at, but I knew that you know a ball was no longer a challenge by the end of that season. Um, and so I come into spring training the next year and. Uh, there just there weren't a ton of really good talented lefties in our organization, and the mechanical adjustments I'd made with Brad Holman, all of a sudden I was able to throw ninety ninety three, and I could put it wherever I wanted. Um, I could cut it, sink it. I mean, I could really pitch all of a sudden because I had my mechanics were allowing me to just you know all I had to do was move my finger position a little bit. But he taught me how to um, basically work top to bottom and work in that straight line where. You know, the only thing I had to change to hit a spot was just these tiny little things versus before my whole body would go over there and, and, I'd, and I'd work side to side and, and it was just so hard for me to pitch. But after I worked with him, I could really just, I could just dot up. Um, so I knew I, I knew I was getting pretty good at it and my velocity was climbing and I pitched in, uh, you know, four or five games and this coach came over to me and he goes, hey, his name was Lance Painter. He played in the big leagues for a little while, but he was coaching, I think, uh, maybe triple a or something at the time he was maybe the triple a pitching coach but he'd been watching me pitch and he goes hey if you have a good year this year you could be in the big leagues and i was just kind of like get out of here lance i'm an a ball right now man like i'm not getting to the big leagues for four more years of this if I, if everything goes perfect and he goes no there's not a lot of guys ahead of you on the depth chart i i, I saw it in the meetings today and i was just kind of like whoa man i didn't i didn't think that you know getting to the big leagues this year was that was never a possibility. Um, but so I go to, um, I go to high A and me and this other guy, Mark Lowe, um, 
we're pitching pretty well there. And I remember one night me and him were just sitting in a a hot tub after the game, just drinking some beers. And and he kind of had a similar chat with a different coach uh, because low through low through 96, 97. um, And he had he got to the big leagues and had himself a decent career. Um, But we were just sitting in the hot tubs one day like, hey, man, did that coach, you know, this coach told me this. He goes, dude, somebody told me the same thing. Let's do it. Let's get to the big leagues this year. And so from there, we kind of just set our sights on the big leagues that anything short of that was going to be a failure. And when you got when you got that visual of pitching in the big leagues in mind, uh, a ball hitters aren't intimidating you because because you're kind of looking at, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get David Ortiz out in September, you know, so no a ball hitter was really going to um, was going to intimidate us in any way at that point. And man, we both we both wound up just. You know, everybody says, oh, well, once you get to double A, you know, once you get to double A, that's when your stuff's going to start getting hit. We both got to double A and, and nobody hit it. And then we went to triple A and then we went to the big leagues all, all in one season, which is, you know, it's just, it's not realistic, but it, you know, it happened for both of us that year. So you had 25 appearances in double A, uh, yeah. San Antonio, my home park, good place to pitch. Great place And you're Dyson. Pitch. I think, yeah, you carried a, you carried a, uh, about a one ERA there. Every time you, you know, when you'd walk off the mound after a good outing, would there ever be a thought in your head of, hey, is that is that the one that gets me the call or is that the one no. that gets me to AAA or is it I'm just going about my business? No, it was just one game at a time. And um, I knew I was good, though, man. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I've ever thrown the ball better than I threw in AA that year. Um, I put in so much mechanical work. This uh, Brad had given me these drills, man, and I did them every single day relentlessly. So my mechanics were just so clean. Um, I could literally put the ball wherever I wanted to. And uh, yeah, I just, it, you know, it was just one game at a time. I knew I was doing really well and I and I was really confident, but I was still so afraid of failure. I was still looking over my back, you know, over my shoulder every day, waiting for everything to fall apart. So the drive was always there to just continue to get better and and, and just never, you know, let off the gas one bit. Um and yeah, it just it just kind of came together. I I don't know if I've ever thrown the ball better than I did that year. Walk me through the day you got the call because you had an atypical big league debut. Oh yeah, it was weird. Um, so I pitched really well in Double A, and then I got called up to Triple A, and and I was so young when I got to Triple A. Um, the guys asked me, "Were you pitching well?" Because a lot of times, you know, Triple A needs an arm. So they call some guy up from A ball, right? But they're asking me if I'm pitching well because, you know, if I'm pitching well, then I'm here to stay. That means they got to make a move. Somebody's getting released. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be cocky, but I wasn't going to lie to him. So I just said, yeah, I, I've been I've been dealing, you know, and is the most humble way I could. But also letting them know, you know, I'm, I've got this is a real call up. I'm, I'm here to stay. And uh, they kind of, you know, it's scary for those guys. Right. Because somebody's going to probably get released, and somebody did. I can't remember who it was. They either got sent down to Double A or whatever, but they got to make room for you. And so I pitched in two games there, a um, couple scoreless outings, and still at the same time, man, I still don't think I'm going to the big leagues. You know, it's just it's not a reality. I just I put big leaguers on this pedestal. They're just gods, right? But Low, my buddy, had gotten called up to the big leagues from from Double A about two weeks earlier. And I'm pitching in AAA, and then we get like an off day. And what what had happened was I got called up, and then we immediately went on a road trip. So we get back to Tacoma, and we got our first off day. I'm just trying to get settled into Tacoma. Um, I haven't done laundry. My bags are everywhere. I don't have a suit or anything like that to get called up. It's just it's not even a possibility yet. Uh, I figured I'd be there just as long as I was in uh, 
in double A. And I just, I get this call to my hotel room. Uh, it was Brownie, the manager. Uh, and he just says, uh, Hey, um, get your stuff ready. Cause you're going on a flight. We're sending you back to, uh, San Antonio. And I said, okay, uh, I'll start packing right now. And I just, I, you know, it was realistic to me that, you know, I, I told those guys I was here to stay, but maybe I'm not, I don't know. I don't know how this works. Um, and I was an A ball to start the year. So maybe there's no room for me in AAA. And he goes, um, never mind, buddy. I'm just messing with you. You're going to Oakland. And I was like, what am I going to Oakland for? There's no team there. <laughs> didn't <You know>? register. <laughs> no, I didn't register at all, man. I mean, realistically, I just didn't, it just didn't seem possible to, to, to be in the big leagues. Right. I mean, it's just, it was just this level that was just so absurd. Um, and he's, he's like, there's a team in Oakland, buddy. It's the Seattle Mariners, the organization you play for. You're going there tonight. You're pitching for them. And I just was like, holy crap, man. Okay. You know, uh, thank you so much. And I hung up the phone and I just started just bouncing off the walls, screaming in my hotel room. You know, I couldn't, I just couldn't contain my energy, but I only had like 20 minutes to pack and get to the airport. And so I, you know, I'd called my grandpa. He was living in Bellevue, uh, about 40 minutes away for a ride. And he flew down, picked me up, dropped me off at the airport. Um, I barely made the flight, jumped on the flight. I'd borrowed a, I'd called the trainer at the hotel and asked if he had a suit jacket I could borrow. So I, you know, I, cause in the minors, when you travel, you just have to wear um, slacks with like a button down. So I had different colored pants than my jacket and a, you know, some red button down shirt. I looked like an idiot, but I'm jumping on this plane. I'm going to the big leagues, right? And I'm sitting in first class for the first time in my life. Um, it was crazy, man. And, and the, 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 um, the bus or the taxi driver, I mean, I landed in Oakland and I went straight to the stadium. I just get dropped off in this big ass, uh, Oakland parking lot. It's a huge parking lot. I had no clue how to get in the stadium. I'm walking around the stadium with a Mariners bag over my shoulder. And finally some nice fan was just like, Hey man, are you trying, are you a player? Are you trying to get in there? He goes, you got to go this way. Cause I'd probably walk two laps and I didn't, I didn't know if I could go through security or really how to get in. Um, so I get in there and I walk into the big league clubhouse and back then, man, big leaguers weren't, um, they weren't too welcoming. You know, it was, it was kind of like an earn your keep type of thing. So I walk in and nobody says hi to me or anything like that. Uh, I just kind of go find an open locker and, and put my stuff in it. And the open locker I'd found was between Adrian Beltre and Richie Sexton. Um, so and, the two highest paid guys on the team. <laughs> yeah, but there's an open locker. And, you know, one of the things they do in the clubhouse is they give the veterans an open locker to put their clothes in and then their baseball stuff's on in their locker, right? So they had this open locker they're sharing and this, you know, dumbass uh, <laughs> rookie just shows up and starts trying to take their open locker. So I get blown up for that and they take all my stuff and just throw it out in the middle of the clubhouse and say, you're not putting it here. So then I just start walking around. Luckily enough, the club, he comes up to me soon enough and he goes, hey, you're in that corner behind the, uh, you know, there's like this little cubby hole stuff behind a, uh, a pillar. And I said, cool. <laughs> you know, I didn't have any problem with that. So I'm packed my stuff, found the, found the manager and everything. And I go out for the workout and uh, the manager says, hey, um, we got a problem. Uh, we were going to put Soriano on the DL today because his neck hurt. You know, that's why we called you up. Uh, but he says his neck feels better and he doesn't want to go on the DL. So you're going back to Tacoma tomorrow. And I wasn't sure if this was another joke or what, but I wasn't going to, you know, question it. So I said, okay. So I go, you got They go, you got to sit in the, in the, um, you got to stay in the clubhouse during the game. You're probably going to fly back to, 
um, Tacoma tomorrow morning. You know, we're really sorry about this. And, you know, that was kind of the worst way that you could get called up is to get called up all the way to the big leagues and uh, just find out, well, you're actually not here. You're going back. Uh, you're not pitching. You're not doing it. But I got to taste it. I ate some of the clubhouse food. I played catch on the field and everything. And in my mind, I was just like, that, that, that was cool enough. You know, that you're was like a six, 60% of big league. <laughs> yeah, I'll, whatever. That was a fun experience. I'll go back to Tacoma. Um, you know, no entitlement at that point. Just happy to happy to be sharing the, anything with those guys. Um, so the, I watched the game in the clubhouse, and um, you know I talked to the media and stuff, done all these interviews like I was there. And then after the game, I'm kind of just walking back to the bus, packed all my stuff up, and I'm going back to Tacoma. And uh, Raul Ibanez just walked back with me to, um, which you know that meant a lot because other guys wouldn't even say hi to you. But Raul Ibanez, who's one of the nicest guys in baseball, he walks me back to the walks back to the bus with me. And he goes, hey, man, I've heard some good things about you. You're going to be here soon enough. You know, keep your head up. Just go down there and work hard. And I was like, okay, you know, I guess that's what I'll do. You know, I didn't feel as bad about it after talking to him, especially him saying that he'd already heard about me and I was, you know, I was going to be back. Um, So I go, I sleep in the hotel and I got a 11 a.m. flight back to Tacoma the next day. And about, you know, I'm going to leave for the airport at 930. I get a call. Uh, from the traveling secretary at uh, you know nine nine ten or something like that, he goes, "Hey, you need to stop by my room real quick." And when I go to his room, he hands me an envelope with like fifteen hundred bucks in it. I'm like, "What you know? What's this for?" And he goes, "That's your meal money. You're staying. You're staying for the trip. Okay, be ready to fly to um, Anaheim after the game that tonight, right?" So that was kind of how I found out I was staying, and that whole day was just a complete. Uh, the whole twenty four hours just a just clueless whirlwind for me. But it was cool, you know. I mean, it's, it's a unique story of getting called up. What What's it like the first time you you run onto the field? First time you get called in? Oh man! So I didn't get to go on the field at game time, right? But the first day. So then that day they say you're here. You know, you're going to be down in the pen tonight. We're going to try to get you in the game. We want to get you, you know, your debut and get everything going. Um, and you know, in in Double A, I'd been throwing ninety three, ninety four that summer. My velocity was, you know, the highest it ever been, but. It was colder in Oakland, and you know I was nervous, man. I was so nervous. I did, I I wasn't even comfortable stretching in front of the the big leaguers. You know I wasn't even comfortable sitting or talking or making any noise. I mean I just wanted to be invisible down there. So I didn't stretch or do anything before I went in the game. I just sat in the corner with my head down, didn't look at anybody, kind of just watched the game unfold. And then in the, the I think it was the seventh inning, the phone call rings and they say get O'Flaherty going. So I just jump out of my chair, you know, almost hit my head on that little um, dugout roof in Oakland. And I kind of do like a quick stretch, just grab a ball and just start chucking the ball all over the place. I'm so nervous. Um, The fans are just all over you. You know, you're not used to that in the minors, not big league heckling, but these fans are just like, hey, you're going back to AAA tomorrow if you keep throwing like that. I'm scudding balls. I'm overthrowing the catcher. I mean, it's just a mess. Uh, So I finish warming up and, and... they call me in the game and I jog in the game. And for whatever reason, I just looked up at uh, the, the Jumbotron. And you see yourself on one of those things for the first time. That's when the reality hit that, you know, you're really in the big leagues about to do this right now. And I had to stay out of my head big time because, you know, it's it's easy to kind of have to overthink it and have that panic attack where you're you're realizing, man, I'm I'm legit big leaguer now. I'm pitching in a big league game. And so I go in there and and. You know, I'm just so nervous. I'm just clamming up, and and I can't even feel the ball in my hand. 
and I'm throwing about 87, 88. Um, the first batter I face is Mark Kotze. The first pitch I throw, he laces a double off the right field wall. And that was, <laughs> I was like, oh man, this could get out of hand in a hurry. Um, the next guy was um, Eric Chavez, and I strike him out. And then Frank Thomas comes up, and I have to intentionally walk him. Thank God, because he looked he he looked forty seven feet tall. His legs not a like small trees. Dude. No, I, I would have had you know that would have been a bad at bat. He, that could have been been pretty ugly. Uh, I couldn't believe how big he was. I mean, I'd seen him on TV and everything, um, but he was just ridiculous. Uh, just a monster of a human. And so I walk him. The next guy's um, Milton Bradley. He grounds out to first, and then they take me out of the game. And, uh, it, I mean, it just all happened. It was just a complete blur. But just getting out there and experiencing that for the first time, man, was it was it was unreal. It was uh, – it was I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't feel the ball in my hands. Is You know, it was, it was super overwhelming, but it was pretty awesome. I was going to ask you what your welcome to the big leagues moment was, but I feel like Mark Kotze taking your first pitch for a double yeah, might be a, hey, this yeah. is going to be tough. <laughs> that, that was a welcome to the big leagues moment uh, in its own, but my real welcome to the big leagues moment where you know, I felt like I'm legitimately here was A-Rod hit a ball about 600 feet off me at Safeco uh, and the pimp job and everything, and it was just a front row seat to something you'd seen on TV, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times and I watched the Mariners growing up so A-Rod was you know one of my favorite players and he got in I threw him a fastball down and away you know pretty safe pitch and he hit it he nuked it 700 feet to left it's upper deck at Safeco which nobody does and I knew that because I'd watched a lot of games at Safeco people don't go upper deck there they do now because the balls are different but I just when he hit that ball man it was just like this front row seat to something just majestic the most pure baseball swing I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, it was it was kind of cool, you know. It was, that's that's when I knew I'm definitely in the big leagues. So you spend 2006 in the big. You get 15 games in 2006. You spend a majority of 2007 in the big leagues, pretty much the whole year. You throw 56 yeah. games. 2008 wheels seem to come off a little bit. Well, I hurt my back in 08 in spring training, and you know it was a different culture back then. Where if you were a young guy, um, you weren't really allowed in the training room. And you definitely weren't supposed to be hurt or have a bad back, right? Um, so I'd hurt my back pretty bad, but I wasn't going to say anything. Um, you know, I was just saying, you know, I'm, I was happy to be in the big leagues. I'm going to just pitch through this and, and get it done. And there's just certain things you just can't pitch through. So I was completely ineffective. Um, I gave up like 15 runs and in 10 innings or something just so ugly. I had like a 20 ERA. And uh, when they go to send me down is another thing, you know, you're supposed to, if you're hurt before you get sent down to the, from the big leagues, you're supposed to say something. But I didn't want to say I was hurt now after pitching so poorly, because then it's definitely going to look like an excuse. Um, so I continued to pitch in AAA when I went down there. And then finally, um, I just couldn't pitch anymore. Like I couldn't get out of bed. I remember one time I was at the mall with my wife and I had to crawl to the car. My back was getting so bad. So I finally told the team and, and we did the MRIs and we tried to fix it and, and rehabbed it. And uh, it had gotten so bad that a doctor told my wife I was probably never going to pitch again. So I start doing all this rehab for it. I'm standing on one foot. I'm doing these inner core exercises, trying to get it better. But pretty much uh, 08 was when the Mariners pretty much just said, man, this, you know, we like you, but you're pretty much broken. You know, 
So they tried to slip me through waivers, and that's when the Braves claimed me because the Braves had always had that eye on me, and I don't think they knew the extent of my back injury. But yeah, that was my whole 08 was me just being hard headed and trying to pick, pitch through a back injury that I shouldn't have pitched through. Did it ever, the thought ever creep into your head, especially after a doctor tells your wife that, that you actually might be done? Oh, yeah. I, I'm telling you, I couldn't, you know, I spent that whole summer, um, crazy thing, because I was making like 240000 because I had a good big league split after I got sent down. But I spent that summer, it got to the point where my back was so bad, they told me to stop coming to the field. Because uh, the drive in Tacoma was like 40 minutes from where I was living in Seattle, and the drive would kill my back. And they just said, look, until you can walk and move and do baseball stuff, just stay home. So I spent that summer playing NBA 2K on a beanbag chair. <laughs> you know? So you you got the college experience then? I pretty much did. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I'd drink whiskey for my back to try to kind of like loosen it up and feel better. I did my rehab in Seattle, which... You know, it took a lot of time, but it, it worked and, and it helped me kind of create a base um, kind of maintenance program for my back that made sure it never really got bad again. It would still flare up at times throughout my career, but, um, you know, the MRIs that I did that summer, I had two herniated discs and I had a stress fracture and I had a cyst um, on my spine that was growing into the nerve. So I was pretty, I mean, I don't blame them for thinking this guy's probably never going to return um, and be an effective big leaguer. Well, then walk me through, you know, in, in the uh, in the fall of 08, you get released, you're playing 2K, back's just a wreck. Uh, a year later, you're coming off a 3RA season in the Braves' bullpen. What's the difference? There's a lot of differences. Um, you know, like I talked about, um, the culture and with the Mariners was that old school kind of crusty vet culture that a lot of it's kind of, you know... Cuts you down, you know, and and I think it's part of it was um, young players. Have you seen can be pretty damn good at the big league level if they're confident and comfortable. And I think part of it was a way that the the old school vets kept themselves in the game was to beat you down when you got there and make sure you you kind of felt like you didn't belong. Um, so I, that was kind of the culture in Seattle was kind of rough. Um, there was a few cool guys, you know, Beltre was really cool, Ibanez was really cool, but there's plenty of other guys that just you know they'd rip you every chance they got. Um, when I, when that fall, when that fall happened, I threw a bullpen and, uh, as soon as I was cleared healthy, the Mariners got me off their roster ASAP before my back could flare up again and cost them money or, or insurance things. And so I, that's when the Braves claimed me. So I threw a bullpen at Safeco. And as I was driving home, uh, back to Bellevue, it's like a 20 minute drive. And those 20 minutes, I was already a Brave. Once I was cleared healthy, the doctors cleared me, everything was clear, this guy's a healthy baseball player, they got me off their roster immediately. And uh, the Braves claimed me, so I go to Atlanta, and you know I'm expecting kind of that same treatment um, when I walk into the clubhouse that spring. you know, um, They had this thing called Camp Roger at Turner Field, whereas Roger McDowell would bring all the pitchers in, and uh, you just kind of throw some bullpens and get ready. So I walk into that thing at Turner field and then I'm going to drive down to Orlando from there and I'm walking in and I, I need some shower shoes or something. I go into this office and I ask the, uh, the club, if I can get some shower shoes and this guy was a dick. <laughs> I, I love him to death. Now I know him now. I love him. His name is Bill Acre, but young guys, he didn't like, you know, I hadn't done anything. I just show up and I didn't really nail it. Cause I didn't introduce myself or anything. I just showed it. I just walked into his office asking for stuff. But the other guy sitting in there was Bobby Cox. And before, uh, Bill Acre could be a dick to me, um, 
Bobby took the shower shoes off his feet, handed them to me, and told me to get out of here before, you know, Bill gets up, you know, gets in my ass. You could probably so, sell those on eBay now. I still have them. Yeah, because that was uh, that was an important moment for me. Just I was like, man, this might be different here if that's Bobby Cox who's going to be a Hall of Famer. Um, so I take Bobby's shower shoes and I scamper out of there. And I go to sit down in my locker and I'm just kind of unpacking and settling in, getting ready for this first workout. And Bobby walks over and he goes, hey, you're a Flaherty, huh? I was like, yes, sir, Bobby. Good to meet you, um, Mr. Cox. Um, yep, I'm Eric. You know, <laughs> just super nervous and expecting, you know, it was just, just a totally different atmosphere that I think he kind of created and, and understood the value in, in uh, treating players a certain way and, and boosting their confidence. And so Bobby Cox sits down and just kind of, you know, shoots the shit with me for five, ten minutes. I don't know. And he just he tells me, you know, hey, we've we've we think you have such a great arm. You make a few adjustments. You're going to be a really good pitcher. Um, we've had our eyes on you for a long time. We tried to get you after the 07 season. They wouldn't give you up. So we saw you on waivers and we just had to snatch you. And this, you know, I'm walking into this. I don't even think Bobby knows who I am. Right. And meanwhile, this guy's treating me like you know, like, like a peer and he's, and he's boosting my confidence and telling me how excited they are to have me. Um, my confidence and my comfort level with the organization just, I mean, I was just immediate, uh, immediate difference from, from what I'd experienced in Seattle. And, uh, you know, so then I start meeting the players. I start meeting Brian McCann treats me the same way. Welcome to the Braves, man. I heard you got a good arm. Um, you know, the, Chipper was just, you know, Chipper says, what's up? Chipper's not ripping on you or falling you in the clubhouse. He just says, what's up? That's it. And I don't expect a lot from Chipper, you know, Hall of Famer. I love him too now. You know, I've gotten to know him, but Tim Hudson's there. All these guys are just treating me, you know, like I'm just another baseball player. And, uh, you know, that that was a huge, huge change for me. But that comfort there and, and being around guys that, that treated me a certain way and, and welcomed me to the team, uh, my confidence was just night and day um, pitching for that team. So, that's kind of why you see that drastic change in the numbers from uh, Seattle to Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, you spent five years in one of the best bullpens in baseball, and you were one of the biggest parts of that bullpen. I mean, you were straight filth. You would would you really attribute most of that to just confidence and comfort in the organization, or is is there still something to be said for you continuing to work on your craft and get better? Well, I was that good in Seattle. Um, I, as far as stuff goes, I always had great stuff. I just always had um, kind of like an afterburner effect on my ball, where even though it was 92, it, I could blow it by big league hitters. But um, you know, like my rookie, my rook, my first rookie year in Seattle, I, I was two and zero with like a, or I was seven and zero with like a two two ERA going into August, and I just fell apart. You know, I just got tired. Um, I'd never been through that that big league workload. Um, the first time you go through that as a reliever where not only are you pitching more, but you're warming up way more. Um, that was something that I wasn't prepared for physically and I tired out and I ran out of gas. Um, so I took that to heart when I went to Atlanta, I made sure I was a lot better conditioned, but also throwing to, um, Brian McCann and David Ross there was night and day compared to throwing to Kenji Jojima with Jojima. There was a huge language barrier. I couldn't communicate a lot of things with him. And he called most hitters kind of how he hit. So, you know, my first year, 07 is the year I'm talking about with Seattle. I threw like 70% sliders. I don't know what it was, but I, I threw a slider every fastball count. And the last two months of the season, that scouting report got around and everybody was sitting slider and I just gave it up. Uh, but 
throwing so many sliders kept me from really um, learning how to pitch and throw fastballs and fastball counts and get soft contact and outs with it, which you have to do at the big league level. Um, and I'd have conversations throughout the year with, with McCann, and he'd be like, hey, man, he'd come out to the mound and say, 2-2, two, two, if you make this pitch, if you make this fastball down and away, if you, if you make this pitch right here, I promise you this guy's going to hit into a double play. So then my focus was just make the pitch. You know, you're not, you're not fearing any outcome. Um, you're just focused on what you can do and making a quality pitch. Sure enough, I'd get the double play. Um, and the passion that, that him and David Ross had for the game, the, the work they put in, it gave me so much confidence just um, trying to hit the glove and not thinking of anything else. There was just never any doubt when I was pitching to him. So I think that that confidence thrown to those guys was was a pretty big difference maker too. But yeah, I would say that you know, the mental side of it changed so much when I got to Atlanta that that's kind of when my career took off. Over the course of Atlanta, you went from a young guy, you know, to a vet. You you stayed with Atlanta until you're about 28, which, you know, five or so years. Over the course of, of us talking, you've mentioned a lot of, you know, a lot of guys helping you out, being someone to lean on from, uh, from Lee's brother to Brian Holm to all these guys in Atlanta. Do you think you did a good job with younger players as you got older? Yeah. And, and returning the favor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's hard on them. I'd make sure that they understood what was accepted or expected out of them. But, um, you know, I learned I learned a lot about how to communicate with a, a younger generation. Um, you know, for me, uh, I respected the big leaguers so much that when they screamed at me, I just figured I was wrong. Right. Um, and and when they were on my ass and riding me hard, uh, I just I respected the level so much that I just shook my head and said, OK, um, I learned with the next generation that came up that if you just get on these guys, you're just uh, you're just a jerk, you know, and they don't respect that because uh, every generation is a little different. And I learned that with these guys, you got to befriend them, you know, you got to earn their trust and you got to get in there and kind of finesse that situation a little bit to the point where they don't want to um, disappoint you. And so I learned I was going to play video games and hang out with the young guys. And this was going to be my end to get through to them. You know, I was going to build a relationship with them. And then when I tell them, you know, you can't do this this way. You can't say that. You can't treat this person that way. You can't be late. You can't do this because you have to tell them a lot of times the things they're doing wrong or they're going to continue to do them wrong. But the finesse of the situation was what I really learned how to do. Um, And then just learning that. You know, a thought that you have that's just basic knowledge to me, like, you know, say a guy calls a 2-2 slider and the hitter's a really good off-speed in the zone hitter, right? Understanding that you, you're you throwing a chase pitch here and knowing where to miss with it. You know, maybe maybe if he if he gets a slider middle down on the plate, he can crush it. But if you get it down in a way, right... Uh, it's it's a really good pitch to the guy. So if I miss, my focus is to miss off the plate away, not miss middle. Um, that thought process to me was just common sense at the point I was at in my career. But you'd say something like that to a young guy, and they never even thought of um, how to dictate their miss, how to how to prepare themselves if they do miss to make sure they miss here versus miss there. They just always knew to try to make the pitch and they didn't really know how to control their misses or, or what to just that kind of limiting the damage thought process that you can have. But you say those things to those guys and it's like a light bulb goes off. They've never even thought of it. Um, and I learned that you just communicate with them and you just tell them your thought processes and talk baseball with them as much as possible. Cause you might just say one thing that kind of resonates in a certain way that can, you know, it can change the course of their whole season. 
How long into your Atlanta run did you feel like a vet and did you feel like you were in the big leagues to stay and someone who could impart knowledge on younger players? Probably when I came back. Um, I felt like I was here to stay after the 2010 season because I went to arbitration for the first time um, and I had a guaranteed salary, you know, for the first time. And once you get that arbitration, you know, you're going to have to suck pretty bad to get sent down. It's not going to be, you know, your first three years, you could wind up throwing three innings and we need an arm tomorrow. You're on a bus to Gwinnett, AAA. Uh, but once you get to arbitration, um, you kind of feel a little bit more secure, a little bit more safe where if you have a bad outing or not, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, and then that next year was my best season, just having that comfort and knowing I was in the big leagues to say. Uh, so, yeah, that that's probably when I felt like I was there to stay. And then the, the veteran thing... Um, the veteran thing, you know, that was more when I came back. I guess when I signed a free agent deal and went to Oakland. But in Oakland, everybody had a year or two. So they didn't really care about veterans or, or respect that, um, respect how hard it was to stay in the game because not many of them had been through the grind. Um, so you kind of had to go about it in a different way in Oakland. Um, but when I came back to Atlanta, I, I definitely felt like um, there was that veteran feel to how people treated me and, and how I was respected in the clubhouse. Well, you mentioned not uh, you knew you weren't going to be sent down for performance reason or anything like that. That wasn't an issue for you because I mean you were you were lights out while you were in Atlanta, but in two thousand eight you get the two words no pitcher ever wants to hear. You 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 have TJ. No, that was in two thousand thirteen. I had two thousand. Yeah, yeah, two thousand. Yeah. What did I say? Uh, two thousand yeah, my mistake. 2013, your last year with Atlanta and your first run with Atlanta, uh, you, you get TJ. What's what's the, the day of, the diagnosis? Did you, did you kind of know it was coming with that pain in your elbow? Yeah, I already knew it. Um, so what happened was in 2012, um, I started having this pain in my elbow in June. And I'd already had bone spurs and a partially torn ligament since 05 uh, when I was with the Mariners. You know, I missed the playoffs that 05 season because um, of a bone spur in my elbow. And they did an MRI and saw a partial tear there, too. So I rehabbed it that whole um, that whole off season, And then it never really hurt again. I mean, it'd pop up here and there, but it wasn't really a problem. Uh, but 2012, in about um, early June, my elbow starts kind of bugging me. And it just gradually got worse and worse to the point in... Um, like late July, I tell the trainers about it. And, you know, the Braves at that point had said, if, if you back up your 2011 season, we'll talk about doing an extension after the year. So I really didn't want to come forward and say my elbow was bothering me. But I also knew that if there was something wrong, you know, you can't really hide, um, an injury to your elbow in the big leagues. Um, so I wound up getting an MRI and I'm walking around the mall waiting for the results. And, and Jeff Porter, the trainer calls me and he goes, you know, hey, hey, bull, you got a, you got a T tear in your, uh, in your ligament. Uh, the doctors think you should probably get it operated on, but if you know you're putting up numbers right now, you're getting people out. Um, you know, maybe maybe you want to wait, but it's all up to you. And so that extension was pretty much gone as soon as that phone call happened. You know, I knew the team wasn't going to extend me, so I was just like, you know what, I'm putting together a good season. Let me just ride this thing out, and I'll see if my elbow gets better in the off season because it's gotten better before. So I finished that year, and I actually finished that season scoreless. I threw another 20 innings or something because um, I, I was just hot. You know, that was another reason I didn't want to shut it down is I'd just been throwing the ball really well. And uh, 
So I finished that season out and it gets a little better in the off season, but every time I'd work out or lift any weights or something, it'd flare right back up. You know, if I, if I went to pick up a box or anything where my hand had to be flat and I had to put that valgus stress on my elbow, I'd just get a sharp pain right in the joint. And, uh, yeah, but I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to mess with it if I was still getting people out. And so I go into spring training in 2013 and I'm throwing like 84 miles an hour, but I'm still getting people out somehow. You know, it's just, I'm just locating the ball well or whatever. I get through spring training. Um, but the pain at that point was, it was at the point where I was like, this is a problem. And I, you know, I know it's a problem and I just didn't want to deal with it. You know, I just, I didn't want to go through the process of getting an MRI and finding out I needed Tommy John, but deep down, I pretty much knew I was having it because I was teammates with Johnny Venters and Johnny was pretty much, you know, he was a hundred percent accurate diagnosing people's elbows because he had so many problems. So, you know, I go ask Johnny and say, Hey, it hurts when I do this. He'd go, does it hurt when you do this too? And I, he'd say, what about this? And then he'd kind of look at my elbow for whatever reason. He goes, you need Tommy John. Like, Come on, man. You know, don't tell me that. He goes, no, nah, you lie to me. Yeah. Just lie to me. You know, he's, <laughs> but he was right, you know? And so I pitched like the first month and a half and I was pitching pretty decent. Um, but I knew I wasn't right, and I knew I was kind of just skating by. And finally, I had this outing against the Mets where my elbow was just killing me. And, you know, I I finally went to the trainer and just said, hey, man, let me get some anti-inflammatories or something like that. And he goes, okay, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get some anti-inflammatories for you, but you're probably going to need an MRI because we did that one last year. And if this thing gets any worse, you know, you're risking really sh- just snapping it in half, which could be, you know, could be a lot worse of a – a tear and, and worse rehab, I guess. I don't know if it's worse or not, but so we do the MRI and it, sure enough, it's torn, you know, 80% or something like that. And he's just like, look, man, you gotta, you gotta get Tommy John. So I, that cost me a lot of money, you know, having free Tommy John going into my free agent year, but I just didn't, I didn't have a choice, you know, it's just bad timing. Um, and so, yeah, I had it, I had it, um, like a week later, I had Tommy John. You actually, you pick up with Oakland uh, you, you sign with Oakland, I assume, while you're rehabbing, right? Yeah. And then, uh, and then you pitch that next year. You pitch in 2014. You actually pitch pretty well in the big leagues. Did you ever feel a hundred percent, both physically and mentally? No, no. I felt, I felt terrible. I never, my arm never really felt like it was back after that. I never had that whip again. Um, 2014, I think I pitched well because I was really protected. Uh, I they wouldn't pitch me back to back days. They wouldn't warm me up um, multiple days in a row. I couldn't pitch, um, you know, two times in five days or whatever it was. They had all these restrictions on me because I was coming back from the surgery. And then 2015 was when the gloves were off. And, you know, that was the one thing was my I just could never recover after that. And then I had a bunch of nerve problems and other stuff going on. Um, You know, I didn't I didn't help myself because. I tried, I had these expectations that I was going to be back faster than I was. So instead of taking my time with it, I was always chasing who I was before instead of kind of embracing who I might be now, if that makes sense. You know, and it, and it kind of, sh- you you look at your last couple years in the big league, you go to Oakland, you go to the Mets, um, and then you end up back with Atlanta. You spend two, you basically spend parts of two more years in the, in the big leagues, uh, 2016 and 2017. W- what is that time like for you? Uh, kind of winding. Did you know you were winding a career down, or were you still every day you thinking I can get back to 2011, 2012 me? Man, every day I came to the park, uh, and today was going to be the day that I found it. You know, and it was almost a 
it was almost like you're a lunatic at this point for believing that things are going to change. But every single day, you know, I'd have this, this adjustment I was going to make or this arm angle or something I was going to do where I was going to feel like I felt before. And I kind of think that was my undoing was chasing who I was before instead of, you know, like I said, embracing who I might be now and figuring out how to make what I am now work. But it was just deflating, man. Every day I'd go to the park and my arm was going to feel good. And, you know, this new adjustment I made, you know, I'm gonna keep my front side in just a little longer, I'm gonna open it up, or I'm gonna get my elbow out there farther, just little things, everything's finally going to click. And it that went on for years, where I was just today's the day, today's the day. And I tried everything I possibly could. Uh, and it just it just never came. Uh, every day when I would play catch, it would just be deflating. And I think part of it, you know, the amount of pressure and how much I cared didn't help me. But every day I would I'd go into it with this great attitude and then I'd play catch and I just, it would just knock the wind out of my sails, how terrible my arm felt. Um, and it just, it kind of went on like that for pretty much from 2015 until, uh, you know, until I retired. And I think the one thing I did wrong was I wasn't afraid to throw a lot and I didn't give myself enough recovery. I think that's why I did well in 14 because I kind of babied it. And I'd always been a guy that threw a lot and I didn't really want to change my throwing program. I was always kind of chasing that ability I had to long toss every day and and throw flat grounds and do all this stuff when the one thing I really didn't try was just, you know, backing off a ton and and always let my arm be fresh. So how'd you know it was the right time to hang it up? Uh, So the, I gave up, you know, my, I had like my 10th bad outing of the year um, with Atlanta and I pitch the game, I shower, I go home, and I get a call from um, Ben Acri, the clubhouse manager, and he goes, hey, Snicker wants you to come back. Snicker was the manager. He goes, Snicker wants you to come back um, to the clubhouse. So I'm walking back like, well, this is it, you know. And Snit just says, hey, man, you know, I love you like a son. I've watched what you're going through. I feel terrible. Uh, Copy, the GM, came in. He wanted to release you today. I just talked him into letting you hang around until you get to 10 years. So I, and I had like nine years and I needed like a month to get to 10 years of service. He goes, if, if, if you're okay, you know, if you can stomach it, you know, you can kind of just, um, hang around, you know, talk to the young guys and stuff, play catch, do whatever you want. Just kind of be here for another month and we'll get you to 10 years because he goes, the reason you're grinding the way you are, he goes, I was here, you know, I wasn't managing, but I was, he was a coach the whole time I was there. Uh, my first stint. He goes, you took the ball every day. You never, you never said you couldn't pitch. You know, we wore you out. Um, he goes, I made a lot of money off playoff shares because this team was able to ride you um, in that pen. He goes, you know, I owe you and, and, I, and I got you. I got you this. You know, I wish I could give you more, but I got you another month of service so you can get that full pension. And, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know what to do um, because 10 years, is, it's the ultimate goal when you set out to start a big league career. Um, guys want to have that that 10 years is just the benchmark. And so I went around the clubhouse and I asked like, you know, Terry Pendleton, guys that had 10 years. And I said, you know, is it, is it real? Is it, does it, you know, can I feel good about this if this is how I get 10 years? And R.A. Dickey, uh, Terry Pendleton, they just both looked me in the eye and they go, dude, any way you get to 10 years, you've got 10 years. You know, the, the reason you're having trouble getting to 10 years is because of uh, who you were early in your career, taking the ball every day, take the 10 years just be, just do it, you know? Cause I, I kind of felt, I don't know. I didn't feel good about it. I felt like I was cheating to get my 10 years by just, 
you know, not being good enough to pitch in the big leagues and, and just hanging out in the clubhouse for, for that extra month. But, um, you know, they, they had said, you know, if you can throw bullpens and if you're, uh, if you're back, if you're, if you're throwing really well and you make some adjustments, um, maybe we activate you, you know, you're not for sure getting released, but for right now, I'm just, we're just trying to buy you time and we really want to get you to 10 years. So that's what I wound up doing, man. I just hung out and I still don't know how I feel about it. You know, I don't, I don't ever walk around and claim like, Oh, I got 10 years, but, um, I guess it'll be nice when it comes time to collect the pension. So it's been about two years. Uh, you've hung it up. You look back now, you say you're not sure how you feel about, you know, the 10 years, but how do you feel about the nine, the nine years and 11 months? When you look back at your career, how do you sum it up? I feel good about it, man. And you know, the thing is, is I, I get to look back at it now and just be like, damn, I was pretty good for a while, you know, and, and just, it takes a while to get that taste out of your mouth because I, I failed for three years in a row at the, the big league level. I mean, I, I constantly failed and not even, not even the stats, but just playing catch was a failure every time. I mean, it just, it just, it, it cut me deep to just not be able to do this thing that I'd been able to do my whole life. So, you know, it took some time away from the game to be able to look back at, you know, 2011, 2012, those, those big years I had, um, and just some of the situations I got out of, some of the things I did, and actually kind of pat myself on the back and say, damn, you know, you were pretty good. Or to look back on those years in the minors and, and, and the changes I made. Um, at this point now, I can look back and be pretty proud of, of who I was um, and a lot of the, the hard work and everything like that. But initially, man, it's that taste of failure and and, and failing like that. It, it just it takes time to to absorb it and get rid of it and just be and to move on past it because that's kind of your last impression of baseball and everything like that. I mean, it, it took me a year, uh, to even watch baseball again after I, after I got released by the Braves, I just went home and checked out completely on it. Um, but yeah, looking back, man, I mean, what a fun ride, what a crazy thing to get to do with your life, to get to play in the big leagues and and have all these stories and experiences and, and memories, man, it was, it's, it's unreal. You know, looking back, I got to be pretty happy with that ride. And what do you think you're going to take from your baseball career into your post-career life? Because I, I think that's a thing that guys, whether they're hanging it up in the minors or hanging it up after a 12-year big league career, long big league career, uh, you know, d- don't really know what's next. What are you taking with you for the rest of your life from this career? Bes- oh, besides work- a handsome amount of money and a pension. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the work ethic, accountability. I think you learn um, because you you come up through the minor leagues and and there's guys way more talented than you and they suck, you know, because, because they suck mentally. Um, and, and you look at life situations and and people that succeed in life. A lot of those same traits, um, that make you successful in baseball, you can find when you hang around successful people, there's these attitudes, there's similar attitudes, there's, there's certain mindsets, there's certain approaches to situations, how they handle failure. Um, you watch how people go through their life. And most of the time, the successful people that are having this good ride and doing well, uh, they have a lot of similar traits. And then a lot of people that fail, you know, it's, oh, I'm getting screwed. I have this bad luck. It's not fair. Um, But that doesn't help you in any way to fix your problems. And so uh, I think a lot of successful people are really good self-evaluators. Sometimes it can be too much. But for the most part, um, I learned that, you know, being accountable uh, respecting people, treating people well, uh, uh, you know, just 
knowing who you are and and that that emotional intelligence and understanding yourself all those things that that make a good person and make a successful person in baseball um those apply to pretty much every avenue in life that I've experienced so far. So that's kind of the stuff that I'm really taking from it is just how important character is for uh, success. Lastly, the thing that you attributed a lot of your big league success to is that uh, the atmosphere in, in the Braves clubhouse and in that organization, do you think there's a way, a better way for organizations to prepare their high school signees and kind of bring that environment down to the rookie ball levels to to their young players, or do you think it's it's better to have kind of the trial by fire environment? I think it's happening already. Um, you know, when I would rehab and go down to the lower levels and, and be around it, it's a completely different atmosphere than when I was coming up. Um, the drill sergeant thing just doesn't it doesn't play with this generation. Um, it it really doesn't. You know, and it's not it's not a criticism of them. It's maybe they're just rational enough to be like this guy doesn't need to scream at me. You know, and it, I just took it on the chin and, and accepted it the way it was. But, um, you know, I think that the organizations are doing a lot better job giving their players better food, uh, not running them into the ground, just understanding that, uh, you know, calling them soft all the time and beating them up, uh, it doesn't help anything. Um, but, you know, I think that the the most important thing that, that these organizations do now that they didn't before is they have they have strength coaches they have this is why you see everybody throwing 98 miles an hour because they're building their athletes up instead of breaking them down um they have way better food they have strength coaches that understand how mobility works you know when i was coming up it was just a foam a foam roll was something you never even heard of you know you did the off-season workout program was just three sets of 10 on leg press hamstring curl quad bench press you know rows and shoulders you know like three-way shoulders and then you'd go run poles um, it's all advanced so much now that you're just building these ridiculous athletes. Um, the, the, like the Rapsodo, the analytics, everything that's coming in to, to really explain to these kids what they can do best. And they want to know it, you know, they're, they're like sponges when they come into the game. Now they want to be as good as they can. Um, I think that that's, that's already just light years ahead of where it was when I was, uh, coming up. It's, I can't even say what they could do better than when I was coming through the minors because it's just a different world now. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I mean, you see a lot of you know the all the developments you're talking about. I think it's great for uh, for minor league baseball. Eric O'Flaherty, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm glad you didn't end up in construction and you were here <laughs> talking to me today. Uh, tell the folks again where they can catch your podcast. Uh, it's uh, it's on the Athletic. Um, it's just uh, you go to their podcast. The Athletic's a subscription service. It's got a, you know a ton of the best. Uh, beat reporters and stuff they just added a podcast section where me and uh dave o'brien another uh another writer for the athletic um we just kind of you know we talk mainly braves baseball but it's it's conversations like this pretty much uh twice a week tuesdays and fridays during the season and then just tuesdays uh in the off season so you just go to athletic.com and and sign up awesome well eric thanks again so much for taking the time yeah man anytime and that is a wrap on the first episode from Phenom to the Farm. Again, big thanks to Eric O'Flaherty for taking the time, and a big thanks for you for tuning into this one. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you subscribe to this feed, and if you so wish, leave a five-star rating and a review. In two weeks, on March 3rd, I'll be talking to former Nationals farmhand J.P. Ramirez, and his story being a 2008 15th round pick whose career trajectory and college plans changed just hours before the signing deadline. 
Make sure you check out BaseballAmerica.com for everything going up on the site, from college baseball preview coverage to top prospect reports, as well as the excellent reporting from J.J. Cooper regarding MLB's proposal to cut minor league baseball teams. It's, It's really great stuff over there, always worth a subscription. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho, that's B-A-N-D-U-J-O, and check out my weekly sports movie podcast, Big Screen Sports, coming at you every Monday. Thanks again for tuning in to From Phenom to the Farm, presented by Baseball America, and we will catch you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.